take your seats, uh, take up your Bibles again and turn to John 4. Uh, because it's quite a long narrative, it will help us to have our Bibles open so that we can follow the story uh, and to ensure that what I'm saying is not just a concoction of my mind, but it is taken from God's Word. And uh, let's pray before we begin. Our Father in Heaven, last week in John 3, you showed us that there is joy in us becoming less and even life in Jesus becoming greater. And so we pray that as we read your word, we would become less, that you would show us our sin and that you would exalt Jesus, that we would see the life that is in him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. There's something fascinatingly contagious about a crowd, isn't there? Crowds are magnetic. When you see one, immediately you think, what is going on? We get inquisitive. Why am I not involved? And so we investigate. We become inquisitive. All of us, when we're driving and we see a crowd of police cars and ambulances, what do we do? We all slow down and we almost crash as we look at what is going on. Think of the Edinburgh Festival. When you walk down the Royal Mile in the month of August, you see crowd after crowd of people, and immediately you're on your tiptoes, you're peeking behind heads to try and see generally the nutter in the middle who's juggling with fire and swallowing swords and whatever. Just think of the news in the last few weeks. You see the power of a crowd in Bahrain, in Egypt, and now in Libya. Crowds are magnetic. Well, at the start of John 4, all we have is one guy, one weary Jew, who is thirsty, sat next to a well. Pretty unspectacular. But by the end of the episode, the whole local town is encircling this one guy. All of a sudden, we're interested. What is he doing? We're on tiptoes to try and see why is the whole town gathered around this Jesus. And the aim as we walk through John 4 will to be see, okay, does Jesus deserve this sudden uh, magnificent crowd that is surrounding him? And John, the writer of the gospel, is as it were going to put us on his shoulders so that we can have a clear line of sight to watch what goes on, to eavesdrop on the conversation so that we can find out if Jesus really warrants this unexpected multitude. Now, as we do this, John is going to use two tactics. I want to outline these first so that we can see them as they go through. The first one is that of misunderstanding. Time and time again in John's gospel, he'll introduce a character who just completely misunderstands what is going on. It's very clever. So as they misunderstand things, John then has an opportunity to explain so that that person, and hopefully us, can then come to understanding. And we're going to see three things that are misunderstood in this chapter. But the second thing is the geographical movement that happens in this chapter. Bear with me, let me explain. Uh, He's quite deliberate in where John places people and the movements they make. So at the start of this chapter, Jesus enters the scene, and what does he do? He takes a seat at this well, and he doesn't move for the whole chapter. He sits, he dwells, he remains. Now, the disciples then go, they leave the well, they leave Jesus, he still sits there, and they go into the local town. 
Then the woman comes to the well and sees Jesus. Then the disciples return from the town. They come back to Jesus, still sitting here. The woman leaves. She goes away. Then what happens? The whole town comes to Jesus, and they urge him to remain for two more days. See, Jesus just sits, and everything happens around him. That's going to help us as we move on in John 4. So three misunderstandings. If you like to see where we're going before you set off, we're going to see the wrong fountain, wrong worship, and then thirdly, wrong foods. The wrong fountain, wrong worship, the wrong foods. So the wrong fountain, John sets the scene for us. Jesus is on the run from the religious leaders of his day at the start of this narrative. And as he flees from uh, Judea to Galilee, he must go through Samaria. And no doubt weary from the journey and from the heat of the day, it's around the sixth hour, around noon, he finds somewhere to take the weight off his feet as he sits down by this well. And his disciples go into the local town to find the nearest Tesco to get some food. Then the woman enters stage right, and she comes to draw some water. Now, just note at this point, remind yourself, she does not have a scooby who Jesus is. As far as she is concerned, he is just a weary Jewish traveler who's in need of a drink and who's been abandoned by his mates. We as the readers have insider knowledge. We know everything he has been doing and who he is. She is in blissful naivety. And so conversation ensues. Have a look at verse 7. Jesus says, Will you give me a drink? Sounds harmless. But the woman reacts doesn't mince her words. Uh, you are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? You see, Jesus has stepped on a minefield of social taboos at this point. Uh, you don't need to be a historian to work that out. He tells you in verse 9. You see that? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Politically messy, uh, historically volatile, religiously intolerant, and socially it just didn't happen. But Jesus still cracks on with conversation in verse uh, 10. He says, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that speaks to you, then you would have asked him for a drink and he would have given you living water. Now, the woman responds to Jesus at this point. I think partially in kind of sympathy, sarcasm, and partially in annoyance. Look what she says in verse 11. Uh, Sir, <laughs> you, have, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is very deep. How are you going to give me this living water? Maybe she thinks from the dehydration and from the heat of the day, Jesus has gone a little bit... <laughs> uh, what is he saying? He Jesus, you don't have a bucket to get down into the well. You don't have a spade to dig yourself a new well. Mm, what is he talking about? But maybe there's slight annoyance as well. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Jacob had given us this well. This is precious to us, Jesus. And you are inferring that something about Jacob's gift is insufficient. That you are somehow greater than him. Not only is he a little bit cuckoo, he's arrogant in his cuckoo-ness. 
You can imagine if the conversation stopped here, the woman would have gone home that night and chatted to her friends. You should have, you should have heard this nutcase I met at the well today. <laughs> he was saying he was even greater than Jacob. I mean, I know we don't associate with the Jews, but now I know why. Well, Jesus still cracks on. He steps on her toes even further. Look at verse 13. He shows even more the insufficiency of the gift of the great father of her nation, Jacob. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. Jesus, his claim here is that he can give thirst-quenching eternal life. You know, like you go to Nando's and you get the bottomless drinks. He says, I will be for you a self-renewing, internal, everlasting flow of water that will bring you eternal life. The woman says, well, sir, give me this water. If anything, it would be practically suitable. I wouldn't have to come like clockwork back to this well. See, I don't think the woman gets this yet. I think she's just entertaining the ramblings of this Jewish stranger. But look at verse 16. All of a sudden, things get very serious very quickly. With one phrase, Jesus grabs this woman's attention completely. Verse 16, go. Call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replies suspiciously. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Do you see the sudden change in tone? In the conversation, Jesus has been operating on a completely different level to this woman. He's not been talking about H2O and holes in the ground. But with the precision of a surgeon's knife, he puts his finger on the deeper thirst of this woman. He's not concerned about her daily commute to the watering hole. You see, he puts his finger on her deeper thirst. What is it that she has been looking to be quenched with? She doesn't need physical water. She's standing by a well, for goodness sake. She's got a bucket full of this stuff. But what has she been looking to to quench her deeper thirst? Well, five, count them, five previous broken relationships. She knows the pains of what it is to lose five husbands. And now she is living in immorality with a man, presumably trying to find the satisfaction, the joy, the life, the fullness that these men had robbed of her. And Jesus knows her present sinfulness and her past experience. That is where she has been looking to be quenched from her thirst. And Jesus knows all about it. She's living in drought, and the fountain to which she is going for quenching, to be quenched from her thirst, is these six men. Jesus knows all about it. He says, go, fetch your husband. There's the source of your thirst. 
One man, not enough. Two, three, four, five, still thirsty. Six, still thirsty. And you will thirst again, says Jesus. I wonder if Jesus was to, with the same surgeon's knife, with precision, land on the area of your life that you are looking for to be quenched from your thirst. I wonder what he would say. To the woman, he says, go, get your husband and come back. Maybe he would say to us, go, get your home report and come back. Oh, look, you've just had a new extension. All your IKEA furniture is replaced with John Lewis. Yeah, you're still thirsty and you'll thirst again. Maybe he says, okay, go log on to your social network sites and then come back. Oh, look, you've got a ton of friends, but you are still thirsty and you will thirst again. Maybe he says, go fetch your car and come back. Oh, look, the new model, the sat-nav, the aircon, the heated seats. Yeah, but you are still thirsty and you will thirst again. Maybe he says, okay, go get the breakdown of your internet usage, then come back. Oh, look, you've had your weekly dosage of porn, but you are still thirsty, and you will thirst again. You're going to the wrong fountain, Jesus says. He drives us to our deepest sense of sin. He puts his finger right on it, because he knows all about it. He knew this woman's past, and he knows her present sinfulness. He knows how we have spent the last week. He knows what you did last night. He has seen your internet downloads and he has seen how you've spent your money. He knows all about it. And he says you're going to the wrong fountain. Twice in this passage we're told come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Do you know what? The amazingness of the gift Jesus offered is intensified by the extensiveness of his knowledge of us. He knows everything about this sinful woman, and yet it is to this very woman that he offers the gift of eternal life. He knows all about you. He knows your sin, and yet he still says, here, come drink of the fountain that gives thirst-quenching eternal life life. You see, when Jesus says, whoever, he really means whoever. In John 3.16, when he says, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, he really means whoever. In John 3.36, when he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, he really means whoever. In this passage, when he says, whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst, he really means whoever. You cannot leave tonight thinking, I am too bad for this Jesus. He doesn't know how bad I am. He knows everything you ever did. And yet still, stunningly, he says, I give you eternal The who and whoever includes you. Now this moment of the revelation of this woman is actually a moment where she starts to understand who Jesus is. In verse 9, she calls him just a Jew. In verse 19, she says, 
I see that you are a prophet. She's starting to get it. And in verse 19, she brings up this point. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that we should worship in Jerusalem. Here's the second misunderstanding. She's been going to the wrong fountain, but she's also been doing worship wrong. Wrong worship. Now, some people have seen this uh, stuff about uh, the mountain in Jerusalem as a kind of avoidance technique from this woman. She's suddenly been exposed of her sin, and so she brings up a theological conversation to divert Jesus away from that topic. I don't think that's what she's doing. I think she hits the nail on the head, and this is the precise place the conversation needs to go. Go back to the geography of the passage to explain this. Where is Jesus sat? He is sat next to a well, and he is also sat next to this mountain where the Samaritans worship. The woman says to Jesus, Okay, Jesus, you have just said you are better than this well and even greater than Jacob who gave it to us. Does that mean you are going to say you are greater than this mountain as well? You've replaced the well. You've replaced Jacob. Are you going to replace the mountain where we worship God? Do you see how it's the logical place for the conversation to go? And Jesus actually says, Well, yes. The woman is concerned about the where of worship. Jesus actually is more concerned about the how of worship. Twice we're told, if you look at verse 23, true worshippers, that infers there's a false way to worship. True worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Then again in verse 24, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Here's the false way to worship. And actually the woman does both of these things. The false worship, the wrong worship, is to restrict your worship of God to a specific place, like a mountain, and to do it beneath the veil of hypocrisy. See, this woman is concerned about doing her formal things of religion at this place. But all the while, she is living in immorality with this man at home. That's the wrong way to worship. I wonder if some of us are guilty of that. We treat this building like this is the place where we come and we do the formal parts of religion. We sing the songs, we pray the prayers, we say the amens. But then as soon as we leave the doors, we're out and we're playing with the world's toys. We act as if God is only in here and then I can live the rest of the week however I want. Look what Jesus says. You need to hear this. God is spirit. He is with you as much in your bedroom as he is with you in this room. See, the true way to worship is in spirit and in truth. It's not wrapped up in a place. It's not a where, but it is wrapped up in a person. Remember John 1.14? The word that is God became flesh in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, that is Jesus, has made him known. Let's explain this with the geography again. Remember the geography of the passage? Jesus sits. The woman comes to him. Then the whole town comes to him. And then the disciples come to him. What is the point? Where is the fountain that will give you eternal life? 
Where is the place that you meet with God? Where is the place that you worship God? Where is the place of salvation? It is in coming to the person of Jesus Christ, the full revelation of God the Father in this Jew by a well. See, that is the place to go. In verse 22, we're told salvation comes from the Jews. That is true. It's even more than that. Salvation is found in this Jew, in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 26 to the woman, you know that promised king that you have been waiting on? The one God would send to bring eternal life? I am he. And I love the excitement of the woman. Look what she does in verse 28. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man. She leaves the old fountain behind, leaves the well, leaves her jugs and goes to the town to tell, I have found the Christ. He is the one place, the true focus of all worship. Not in a place, not in hypocrisy, but focused on Jesus Christ. Well, as she goes away to the town, you'll see that the disciples return and they join this woman in her misunderstanding. One of my lecturers at college used to call the disciples the disciples because <laughs> they, they never quite get it. And so do you see in verse uh, 32, they get the wrong food. Here's our third misunderstanding. They come back having found a Tesco in the, in the local town and they say, verse 31, Rabbi, eat something. Verse 32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him some food? See how they're operating on a different level of conversation? Well, look at what Jesus explains very patiently to these slow disciples. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What is it that keeps Jesus going? What is it that is his source of energy? It is obedience to his Father's will. And that is more vital to him than his physical foods. What has he been eating? What has he been doing when his disciples are absent? He has been giving eternal life and saving knowledge to this woman. That is what he eats. That is what keeps him alive. Now, application to those of us who are Christians, to members of Charlotte Chapel. How important to you, what value do you place on obeying God's will to take the gospel to unbelievers who are thirsty? Shorten that. What value do you put on evangelism? Is it as important to you as physical food? This week, Liam Garvey is coming to my office at about 11 o'clock each day and asked, is it lunchtime yet? <laughs> See, we, we get hungry very easily. I couldn't miss a meal. <laughs> and yet Jesus says, more important to me than physical food is to extend the knowledge of the saving good news of Jesus Christ. When was the last time my belly rumbled because I missed an opportunity to sell someone of Jesus. If my last physical meal was wrapped up with the last time I shared the gospel with someone, would I still be alive? 
Is that not a scary thought? How vital is it to us to proclaim this message of salvation? Jesus says, open your eyes, Charlotte Chapel. Open your eyes. Look at the harvest that is on our doorstep. Look at all the people who are thirsty. Oh God, give us his appetite to eat from the same plate as Jesus to take this good news. Is the reason that Edinburgh isn't breaking down our doors to get in to hear this because we have not testified to Jesus like this woman? Do you see what happens? She runs away. The whole town comes. Open your eyes and eat the same foods that Jesus eats. Well, let me speak to you if you're not a Christian. Because actually hidden in this truth is a glorious reality about why Jesus Christ came to this earth. What, why did he live on earth? Why did he dwell, come and sit and remain for a while? What was his purpose, his meat and drink, his food whilst he was here? Well, it was to bring someone like you eternal life. It was his very reason for coming. What's amazing about this passage is how it kind of echoes down John's gospel to chapter 19. There are loads of similarities that explain how Jesus brings you eternal life. You see, in chapter 19, it's the same time of day. It's around the sixth hour. In John 19, we see another crowd encircling Jesus. But this time he is not sat by a well. This time he is pinned to a cross. And once again, John lifts us up on his shoulders so that we can get a line of sight into what is going on. And what you hear as Jesus pants for every breath, do you know what you hear him say? I am thirsty. (laughs) Here is Jesus, who to give you thirst-quenching eternal life, himself enters into a drought that leads to his death. He dies the death you should have died as he thirsts even to dying so that he can give you this living water. Isn't that amazing? And as you listen in, his final words before he breathes his last and hangs his head, do you know what he says next? It is finished. Remember John 4? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. As Jesus breathes his last breath, he is finishing the work. It's like he puts his knife and fork together on his plate. As he has done everything necessary for you to be saved. See, turning to these cisterns of the world, these wells like this woman, relationship after relationship after relationship, That is not only a foolish thing, it is a sinful thing. Remember Jeremiah 2? When you turn to a broken and dried out well, it is to turn from and forsake the God who is the spring of living water. And Jeremiah says, when we do that, we should shudder. It's not only foolish, but it is sinful. And we're entering into a drought that will end in our death. But as Jesus says, 
I am thirsty. And as he says, I am finished, he gives you eternal life. He becomes the savior of the world. Do you see that at the end of our passage? In verse 42, those from the village who understand what has gone on, they say, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. The savior for whoever's like you. Even though he knows you perfectly, he gives you eternal life. I wonder, can you say, like these Samaritans, he is, he really is my savior. Not in the hypocrisy of this woman, but in the true worship of coming to Jesus. If, if that is you, I long that you would be able to say, I believe. This is why this is written down. And to believe, if we use the language of Jeremiah 2, is to forsake the fountains that we turn to in this world, the wrong fountains, to turn our backs on them and to come to God, the fount of living water, to say, Lord, let me drink that I might have thirst quenching eternal life. Listen to the words of Jesus one last time. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He really is the Savior.